You are now listening to the Soccer Football Podcast. What is up, you fuckers? Welcome back (laughs) to another episode of the Soccer Football Podcast. No, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Are you guys even a podcast anymore? And I would say that's a good question. It's a very fair question. We've had some circumstances in the last couple of weeks that have led Unavoidable. to, uh, you know, the recording of a podcast that was never dropped, followed by, you know, we had some career stuff going on. My family just adopted a dog. So that was uh, all the big news of last week. And you know what? We missed a couple of weeks. We love you guys. But remember, we don't owe you anything. And we appreciate your support, and we hope. Yeah, you we're not getting paid for this. We're not getting paid. This is our hard. This is our hard-earned time. Yeah, which is precious, especially entering December. We uh we stuck it out through Thanksgiving. December is kind of precious to me. It's always been my favorite holiday, Christmas. So, apologies on behalf of not only Sev but also me and the soccer football podcast as a whole. And you know what? You can expect. A week that we miss you can expect uh, you know a missed opportunity on a tweet that would have shut down the internet that would have broke the internet because we're humans and that stuff that stuff happens so you're just gonna have to deal with it but anyways we appreciate you tuning in to this week's episode the week 12 episode it was actually we usually just go wow what a terrific week of soccer in the premier league i felt this week was a little bit sleepy I I would agree. Yeah. Lack of goals, lack of, honestly, a lot of like respectful, um, like, uh, plays or performances from teams as a whole was what I was trying to say, tripping over my own words there. It is a Monday, but yeah, I mean, a lack of goals for one and then a lack of really standout performances across the league. And, you know, the the premiere, the headlining game, the Manchester Derby, ended up being a nil-nil draw. That was a little sleepy. Spoiler. Spoiler. Sorry. I should have thrown a spoiler before. Probably, before we get to that, one of the worst games I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, it was super sleepy and kind of characterized the whole week. And then kind of moving beyond that, not too many high-profile games aside from that. And so it, it made for a sleepy week, some talking points that I'm sure we'll talk about more throughout the episode, but definitely making headlines this week, Paul Pogba, maybe Mm -hmm. potentially no future at Manchester United. Yeah, that's been, that's been questioned now for, well, basically ever since he came to Man United is, does he have a future? Is he going to move somewhere? The rumors that came out were started by his agent that, uh, he has the most popular I, and like I call evil. Them, I call them notorious, and I and I use that yeah. word very, very deliberately because notorious, widely and unfavorably known is the literal trans definition of that. That's mm-hmm. Mino Raiola to a T. Yeah, um, I mean, I I'm sure the players he works with love him because he gets them a ton of money. He gets himself a ton of money, but. The industry as a whole definitely, I think, doesn't look kindly on him just because of how much he stirs up the players he controls, how much he kind of looks to screw over the clubs these players play for, and then how much money he takes for himself when it's all said and done. 
you know what, him and his players, that 1%, will never be part of that 1%. We're the 99%ers in this situation, in this in this anecdote of soccer 99.9%ers, fans 99.9%ers, probably. Even, even, yeah, even smaller on their on their part so yeah we hate we hate them because they make too much money and they uh and their agent is kind of a cocksucker but anyways that was a little bit of news he ended up playing this week played pretty well we'll talk about that more during the game uh summary that we're going to do another one Mikel Arteta on the hot seat yeah I would say so uh Along with Ali Gunnar Solskjaer, probably, but out of anybody in the Premier League, I think it probably goes Mikel Arteta, Chris Wilder, Ali Gunnar Solskjaer. Not sure if if you'd agree with that statement. I, I agree when you talk in terms of hot seats reflecting the start to the season that their team had respective of who their team is with that being said i actually personally think that mikhail has more job security than wilder in this situation Hmm. despite despite wilder's amazing run last year um the fact that sheffield looks basically doomed for relegation right now they have one point through 12 games i mean it would take nothing short of a miracle for them to pull them out of that spot. Realistically, yeah. Arsenal aren't going down. Uh they're they're not they're just <laughs> simply not. Like it's not going to happen. And if they don't make don't it know, to man. Europe next year, you know, I think it's a it's something that you can live with, but you know, when you're when you're Sheffield and you just invested uh some money in some young stars and you're going to start getting that payroll up, you kind of were banking on another Premier League season. So I, I could see a change happening there more likely than at Highbury. Yeah, I I actually think that's pretty fair. It's a lot easier to, you know, get rid of the guy. Um, managing your team when you're last in the Premier League looks like you're going to go down. It's get rid of this guy or or keep, it's keep this guy and then maybe go down, maybe stay up or get rid of him. And the only thing that could really change is you get more than one point every 12 games. Um, so that's probably true, but I mean, Arsenal spent a ton of money. They're 15th. There's some teams down there near them that look pretty good. We saw Fulham play well. We saw West Brom play decently well. We saw Burnley, um, in the relegation fight, claw back some points on Arsenal this weekend. Um, so something drastic needs to change for Arsenal. Uh, I don't think it, they're, they're not a shoe in to not go down. Oh, I mean, I think they're a shoo-in not to go down just on the fact that I think that the bottom three teams in the league are actually pretty clear. Um, and I know I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna say at this moment it's actually uh, Sheffield, West Brom, and Burnley. Even though I know Burnley are out of the relegation spot now with that win over Arsenal, but I think uh, when a team exceeds its xg like that and wins on a one nothing own goal against the 10-man arsenal it's not necessarily reminiscent of who they are and what their body of work so far this season tells us so Mm -hmm. basically what i'm saying is throughout the the long run of the season i think that that bottom three and maybe uh the fourth team being fulham 
uh, kind of hanging around. I think they're actually going to start to distance themselves a bit more than they already are from the rest of the table and kind of show us a clear bottom four personally. But anyway, they've been looking a lot better recently. And I am kind of twisting your your leg a little bit. I don't think Arsenal going to go down. They just have way too much quality to go down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is <laughs> it's it's pretty funny because I'm not an Arsenal fan. It must be pretty heart wrenching for you. Yeah, it's brutal. Uh, it does kind of make you. I'm not gonna be the guy who films uh, like a FaceTime video of him screaming and crying in the camera in his mom's car, telling Mikhail a thousand reasons why he should go kill himself. But you know, yeah. that's just not who I am. I, I'm up. I'm an impassioned fan, and I love the sport. And I watch every game, and I follow all the storylines. But you know, I. I I stepped away from the TV on, on Sunday and I took a couple deep breaths and the world kept spinning and I was going to be fine. It's a tough thing to go through, but I'm not like one of those people who internalizes it too much. So we'll be good. I'll be good. We'll be good. Everything will be okay. I have some faith in, in the Gunners to, to bounce back somewhat. Um, big Europa League games too. Who knows? They could finish nowhere and win the Europa League um, and get into Europe that way too. So Season's not all over just yet. No, no, definitely not. Still early, about a third of the way through the season. Um, Last point, Europa League and Champions League draws happened this morning. We're not going to go through all the matchups. You can easily find them on Twitter, Google, whatever. You search them. Some interesting ones there. Looking forward to that. That resumes in probably in February. I imagine I don't have the date exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead of that, we're going to see the resumption of midweek fixtures. We're used to a congested schedule around the holiday with boxing day. And we have a midweek fixtures this week and probably the resumption of some FA cup games and some league cup games uh, in the midweek in, in the coming months. So um, a lot of football still to be played, even without the Europa league and the champions league. Any last thoughts, Luke, before we jump into the games? No, we will, as we tweeted out, figure out how to cover the midweek games, maybe just a, a speed episode or something like that as yes. we enter the busy period for ourselves and football. Um, but we'll do our best to bring you our thoughts on nearly every match. Nearly every match, at least the good ones. All right, sweet, guys. So we'll be right back and we'll be hitting all the games that happened this week. Stay with us. All right. Everybody, we are back, and it was Leeds United versus West Ham United, which kicked off the weekend for us on Friday afternoon. Pretty interesting game. Uh, Unlike most of the other games this weekend, uh, Leeds came out, and we're playing the usual style. We're really taking the game to West Ham, who looked way up for it after uh, Click opened the scoring with an early penalty. Uh, Fabianski saved his first attempt and then was ruled to have put his feet off the line. It was a two-minute VAR review. We've talked about that enough. Just ridiculous at this point, but there you go. Two-minute VAR review. Click gets another chance, and he puts it away. And Leeds at this point looked you know, very, very attacking. They were forcing West Ham to play a way that we've not really seen West Ham play all too much this season. But West Ham, the more the game went on, the more they really grew into it and the more they looked like they suited this game. Uh, it was Saeed Ben Rama's, I believe it was his first start. Was it not, Sev? Uh, I, I believe it was, yeah. Yeah, uh, his first start, and I was immediately shocked. I had not seen him with the number nine shirt on. Uh, 
I, that's Club definitely an over- already. Yeah, it's an oversight by me. The number nine is like the the number that you give to your club's star striker. It's it's the number nine, the guy up top, the guys that's scoring all the goals. And Benarama is like an attacking midfielder. I mean, they do have a converted like wing back, Mikel Antonio, and a man that has like two goals and forty appearances, Sebastian Allaire as their striker. So who knows? Maybe he does deserve the number nine. But he had a great game. He looked super lively. Um, Siri keeps going off. Uh, he looked super lively. He was ki- kind of at the the heart of everything good that West Ham were doing. But they came storming back. They outshot Leeds in this game, uh, which is not an easy task to do, even though Leeds had way more possession. Um, they came storming back, and it was Thomas Suchek heading home from a corner. He is a, a real aerial threat. He's Just tall, a, an absolute water. beast. Yeah. He's a... Another one of those new signings they've they've got um, Jared Bowen, who's also a new signing this season. Um, he took the corner. Suchek headed it home, uh, and both of those players have continued their great starts this season. Mm-hmm. I know originally we did roast West Ham for you know wasting a lot of money, but with Suchek, Bowen, uh, Fornells, and now Benarama, maybe they've they've turned around the spending. Yeah, definitely um, some good value on on a lot of those players too. Like I know Bowen was, it was pennies for him coming from the championship and he's probably been their season MVP so far. Yeah. He's played great. Uh, Leeds definitely a little disappointing uh, on the whole, this game. They didn't really ever look too threatening. Uh, Bamford won the penalty originally, but then besides that Rafinha had a a few lively moments. Uh, They were playing a lot on the counter attack, playing their usual, just frantic style of football. Calvin Phillips had an okay game, but it was really West Ham, the ones that were dominating the game and taking it to Leeds on the whole. Mm-hmm. And they were so threatening in the second half. They were by far and away the better team and definitely deserved their win. And it was Angelo Ogbana who, he- was it a header? I he, honestly I think- don't remember. I, th- I think it was a header um, from a Cresswell deep cross into the box, but he made it 2-1, and West Ham United took the win over Leeds 2-1. They now sit sixth in the Premier League. Leeds, as much as we talk about how good they've been and how exciting to watch they are, they're all the way down in 14th, mm-hmm. but West Ham look really good this season. Yeah, I think when you think about this game stylistically, it actually lends itself fairly well to West Ham exploiting their style against Leeds style. Leeds wants to open up the game and make it end to end and outwork you. And West Ham is never going to be pulled into a frantic style of game. It's just not who they are. They're very smart in how they counterattack. They have their number nine drop deep. He flings it out to the wings. You know, they had, they play with five in the back, super calculated, super organized and really only counterattack one type of way. So for Leeds to pull their players away from net, open the game up, it's going to take a lot of um, disorganization. And so it, it is a game when you, I guess when you look at it retrospectively, you can see how it ended up the way it did. A uh, couple other points. I can agree with that. Click penalty taker is a little bit surprising. Yeah. Uh, I, maybe he's pulling rank. I don't know if he's kind of a leader inside the dressing room or I think he I mean is, who knows what goes on in, in inside the uh 
the practice facility. You know, they yeah. obviously practice penalties. Maybe he has a great record in training. But yeah, you got to... I've always been an advocate for putting your goal getter on PKs. Right? Unless you do feels, have that. It feels yeah. like it's inherently in their blood, you know, intrinsically built into their the fabric of their of their striker of the striker position that you could just you should be able to just step up, look at a open goal and fire something home. Very but it. uh yeah. Another point talked about the number nine being with Benarama. Definitely a little bit of a reach on your brand new signing who is just getting his first start now in December. But you can't give the number nine to Mikel Antonio because the number 30 just looks so perfect on him. It does. Yeah, he definitely he's one of those kind of all all action players, you know, like in the NFL, someone with just a random ass number. Yeah, like a linebacker who's numbered like three or something. And you're just like, yeah, "Yeah, that's or like a running back with like, you know, 40 or something. Yeah, you can't give him the 26 or 24, whatever it is. Yeah, it just doesn't doesn't fit the profile. Okay, cool. So uh, that was on Friday. And so we moved to the weekend slate of games. And the first game kicking off on Saturday was the Wolverhampton Wanderers versus Aston Villa. Um, it was a great match, honestly. Two evenly matched teams, two teams who have at times played some really attractive football and have knocked off some good sides. And I thought through the first 25 minutes that showed to be the case It's a bit of a rubber match. Teams kind of going back and forth. Early on, Villa was owning more of the ball, and Wolves were kind of just picking their moments, especially if they were able to win the ball and push it ahead in transition. But I thought after around the 25th minute, Wolves did kind of seize control of the game, if not with the ball in their classic counterattacking style. Uh, Neto and Podence both started uh, along with Adma Traore. All three of them were lively. And really, as Traore started to get more into the game around the 20th minute, it opened up everything for Wolves. He was getting to the byline and lofting in crosses. And Fabio Silva, who impressed me so much when he came in and uh, for the injured Raul Jimenez during the Arsenal game, he didn't quite cover himself in glory the way he has in past performances. I felt like the ball was coming in in good spots and he was maybe making the run, but getting out muscled by a center back. And sometimes in transition, I felt like his holdup play went and let him down. That being said, he's a really big kid for an 18 year old. Got great skill. I see a really bright future for him and he's impressed me in past games, but this game didn't really hold up with the physicality. Moving I, on. I didn't oh, see he didn't stand out to me at all either. Um he's was kind of passed by by the whole game, I thought. You're saying this game in particular? Yeah, I mean I haven't really seen much of him so far this season. Obviously now with him and his, his injury, we will be seeing a lot more of him, but I haven't seen basically anything. It doesn't he doesn't get the ball that much. Um maybe I'm watching out for the wrong things too. Uh but He's definitely needs more service, I think, at the bare minimum. I think physically, even, like I said, despite his size, he is nudged off the ball easily. But technically, he's really good with the flicks, with the, you know, touch into his feet on the half turn, spraying the ball up to one of the wingers. But mm-hmm. he's thrust into a very important position for that team. And 
their season very well wait may very well may go as Fabio Silva goes. With that being said, uh, Mike Dean gave us a little bit of foreshadowing to how the <laughs> afternoon was going to go for everybody's favorite Premier League referee. He pulled Jack Grealish aside in the 35th minute and talked to him for about 45 seconds to a minute of game time. <laughs> and it was it just felt a little bit excessive at the time. Um, you know, Wolves were really doing a good job of winning 50-50s in the midfield, especially in the Villa third of the field, despite Villa having a good amount of possession. Uh, Grealish and then Donker got into a nice skirmish in the 42nd minute. And I think that this skirmish was as a result of Grealish feeling confrontational because he was failing to make a real stamp on the game. He was getting tons of respect from the Wolves players. Uh, he could be standing on the edge of the box with two guys around him, afraid to actually go in and make a challenge on the ball because it's so easy to foul him and so hard to take the ball from him. With that being said, I felt like he was just holding onto the ball a split second longer than he needed to kind of consistently throughout yeah. the whole game. I and I think why that. we've seen, yeah, he, I mean, he has that habit a lot and that's what has led to Neymar getting hurt, Messi getting hurt, you know, these very talented players, but they hold the ball just a slight, slight second too long. That means people can get a foot in um, and kind of leave their mark on that player. So, I mean, I don't want Jack Grealish to get injured, but not only does he need to move the ball faster for your, like his team, but just like for his own safety. That's I, I also why he gets a lot of fouls, which definitely helps out this Villa side. But I did notice that, and I think that's why we've, we've seen such a good Jack Grealish so far this season is because Ross Barkley's coming to that team, yep. and teams can't man-mark him out, out the game because they have to deal with Barkley also. Yeah, and so... You know, with those players, you do have to take the good with the bad. But I agree both for the good of the team and for Grealish's body holding up in this in this frantic season. He needs to get the ball out of his feet quicker. Uh, Den Donker hit a smoked volley in the 79th minute that Emmy Martinez made a crazy diving reaction save to his right. And... It just made me miss Emmy Martinez a little bit because it was it was world class save, quite frankly. Um, another note that I just have here, I guess this is where I can say it in the timeline of the game, even though it's kind of a non sequitur. Matt Target has the most punchable face in the Premier League. It's up there. It's Jack bad. Grealish is pretty pretty punchable. Jack Grealish is too cool to be punchable though like i i feel like everybody respects him matt target yeah. is just like kind of a little bit of a pestering fullback yeah oh it's like a little he's like oh it's like a little I don't know, i'll say the you know just a little bitch yeah he's doesn't small. really look like he, he's got like any fight if you just hit him yeah either. exactly and and uh when he commits a foul and gets called for it and he throws his arms up and he starts whining you're just like yeah that that whining face and little act that you're doing it suits you really well yeah right bitching. up your alley he's bitching anyways like i said non sequitur uh so here's where mike dean starts to steal the show douglas oh. louise gets booked for his second yellow card of the game in the 84th minute and he sees red it was an elbow uh to the face of maybe podence who was contesting a header and dean was awfully quick on the trigger there 
I mean, he wasted <laughs> no time. He was feeling himself today or on I, Saturday. I think his hand was in the pocket before the play even happened. Like, yeah. It was pretty crazy. When um, he's in that mood, you just don't give him any excuse. Yeah, you really don't. And he kept up his little uh, Broadway act of stealing the show by awarding a penalty in the 92nd minute, 90 plus two minutes of extra time. Uh, McGinn got the wrong side of Semedo, who, with a nice nutmeg, actually, worth noting. Semedo kind of trying to get back into a positive position, clips him, and McGinn goes down. The penalty was converted. And then just to make the... To really to for a curtain call for an encore, I guess you could say, uh, John Batinho was sent off in the 94th minute, literally the last minute you could possibly send somebody off because Mike Dean couldn't help himself. And yeah, let's just say it. I mean, referee of the week performance, unreal performance. Here's the game by by numbers. If people want a little bit of a deep dive, 38 free kicks rewarded, awarded, nine yellow cards, two red cards and a penalty to go along with it. And in this game, we saw Mike Dean give out his 3,000th yellow card wow. in the Premier League. And that is something that we can really get behind. Thank you, Mike Dean, referee of the week, by Honestly, hands down, no can, question about if it. If you're listening to the podcast right now and you're not applauding, you do not understand the the legendary status that he is achieving. That is, that is a referee performance for the ages. Uh, also going to note their positions in the table at this point villa uh is in 10th with 18 points separated by one point from wolves who are tied with a bunch of teams on 17 points currently they sit in 13th on goal differential moving on moving on moving on to newcastle versus west brom i know everybody was sitting on the edge of their seats to watch this one um newcastle scored i think in like 40 seconds miguel almiron had a very sweet low shot into the far corner. Uh, Newcastle started on fire, and then it was West Brom who really looked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the Almiron goal, did you see the angle of the goal? It was from the touchline, from like the baseline touchline, and uh, I guess the end line is what you call it, isn't it? Um, Anyways, uh, it was a shot back across, like the, the camera angle was back across, the field and so you could see matt ritchie like maybe 50 yards all the way across the field as soon as the ball gets to almiron before he even shoots he puts both hands up in the air like like uh trash man frank reynolds celebration (laughs) and he just knew it was going in and i just i hope that i know we're boys i hope we're that type of boys like you have that type of confidence in me that's i love to see that when you know that he's seen almiron do that probably 500 times in training and he gets the ball in that's in that situation and he already knows it's going in he's I, lo- s- I love i love yeah. players having that confidence in like one another to just he's got this yeah it was i mean the slick paraguayan you know midfielder who's probably their most purely skilled player he just knew he just knew yeah yeah he he, he definitely knew and Amron played very well newcastle played so well this first half they were by far and away the better the better side maybe up until the last maybe like 10 minutes of the half when west brom kind of got their ish back together and then they started the second half west brom as a completely different team that we saw in the opening like 30 40 minutes of the first half they looked 
very sharp and were actually able to take the game to Newcastle. In the first half, Newcastle were, had so much space. They seemed to be able to turn the ball over at will, and then they just had players all over the pitch who were open, um, but still only had that one goal. It was Darnell Furlong after a Matty Phillips assist who equaled the scoring. Um, and then Steve Bruce, tactical mastermind, brings on Dwight Gale, uh, the man who sunk Liverpool hopes back in uh, Chris Danbull when they came back and tied Liverpool 3-3. One of my least favorite players, but you know you got to appreciate what he does. He, he scores. He's around the lower sides in the division. He puts in a shift. He'll always give you that that energy and that spark. That's what he did in this game. As soon as he came on and Joel Joella Jolington, that was tough. Uh, was moved kind of out of the out of the box, and the pressure was somewhat taken off his shoulders to try and score. He started playing well and uh, combining well with uh, Callum Wilson and Dwight Gale up top. And Newcastle's winning goal was one of the best goals of this weekend an absolutely pinpoint cross by Jacob Murphy, like 30, 40 yards out from goal on the right-hand side whips in this perfect ball right onto Dwight Gale's head and his header also beautiful off the uh, underside of the crossbar. We've talked before, there's nothing better than a bar down shot, but the ball to the header to the bar down finish right in the top corner game worthy, a goal worthy of winning any football match. Dwight Gale, the savior again for one of these lower table sides, and Newcastle came away with the win 2-1. I mean, a diving header for me, or just like a lunging, you know, just anything where they're full, full um, stretch, stretch, like putting everything on the line to get their head on the ball. That's yeah. the type of shit that gets me, you know, gets me hot and bothered for sure. Yeah. All right. So from that to a game that is among the most prestigious in world football, quite frankly, especially especially in the Premier League. Guess and now. it is Manchester United versus Manchester City. Yes, yes, this is a recent rivalry, but uh, two giants of the sport, no yep. matter really how you want to slice it. Uh, right off the bat, some interesting notes about the starting lineup. John Stones. Started again for City. I believe this is his second game in a row. Might be his third, uh, at least in the Premier League. And that meant that Nathan Ake didn't even make the squad on the Saturday afternoon. And Emmerich Laporte was relegated to the bench. Uh, Guardiola did say after the game that leaving Nathan Ake at home is a shame, especially after how well he played midweek in the Champions League, to which I responded, that's what happens when you buy every defender in the world. Yeah, you know, just with I'm those not... two, that's that's I I think over a hundred million pounds Easily. of center backs not starting. Um, let's not even go into you know Osimendi and all the other ones that have been bought and haven't made it, but incredible. Yeah, and then on the other side, we talked about it a little bit. Paul Pogba, he started for United. I know some United fans were ticked off about it. Some United fans felt like he really didn't have the best game. I, on the other hand, thought he played really well. And when he's when he's cooking, when he's putting in 70% effort, which is essentially 100% effort for him, 
<laughs> he's a lot of fun to watch, and he's a very talented player. I thought Manchester United was able to play with City, particularly in the first half, which led you to texting me saying, City aren't really playing like themselves, are they? You know, you texted no. us that. And, and so, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so City on paper and where they finished the past few seasons are such a superior team to Man United. They can basically go up against nearly anybody in the world, play their style, and play that team off the pitch. It seems like when they play Manchester United, they don't play like themselves. They kind of drop down to United's level and they play super cautious. They didn't, they didn't look that hungry. They didn't look like in control of the game like they normally can be. I wanted to see them assert themselves more in the game and really like go after United and show that they're the superior team. Maybe United were very well set up in terms of just being defensive, but City never got going. United were coping with City and didn't really trouble City all that much either. It's very much just like a stalemate. Mm, I agree. Uh, uh, Potentially, are they playing like this because there have been games in the past where they've owned... 65, 70% of the ball outshot the other team, especially given United's style of play against big sides in recent, you know, recent competitions. Even I'm thinking last year when they did the double against City, yeah. where possession doesn't always equate to the best chances and sometimes leaves you open at the back. You know, do you think that could have been going through their minds? Pep's mind. I guess. I say. And I mean, we've mentioned now that this season we're not going to see a team go get 97 points so you don't have to win nearly all of your games to win the league Mm. but where city are in the table you would have thought that if they have goals of winning the league that where they are now they would have wanted all three points they didn't seem that desperate to get all three points and yeah they seemed cautious and almost playing not to lose, which is something that a Pep Guardiola team, I don't think ever really does. Yeah, especially in the first half, I felt that way. United was able to muddy up the game in the midfield, get the ball in the air, start pushing people around, win some 50-50s, and then in transition, quickly get the ball to Fernandez and Pogba, who created their best chances, especially Bruno Fernandez. I thought he when he had some time on the ball and even um, making himself available to teammates under pressure, like he always does playing out of Manchester city's press, which they pressed very high up the field and United was able to play their way out of it at times. Um, I thought Bruno was terrific this game and Pogba uh, before he kind of ran out of steam in the second half, I thought he was up for it too. Uh, And just in general, Manchester United had good, good shape defensively defending out of a four four three three and everybody's working hard. Fred won, I think all eight of his duels or seven out of eight of his duels was kind of a ball winning machine in the midfield. Mm-hmm. With all that being said, City did open them up one time pretty significantly in in the in the first half. Um and it was a sterling shot that was deflected by Harry Maguire sliding to uh, clear that shot and uh, McGuire was everywhere. Uh, he was everywhere this game, honestly. Um, he had a good game. As long as he 
his space that he has to cover is somewhat reduced and he's <laughs> clearing balls out of the box. Like he does that very well. I, I mean, you can shit on him all you want, but in the box, he's kind of a monster. Yeah. I also very good with the ball at his feet for the most part. It's like you said, he doesn't have to move too much. Yeah. Or like yeah. doesn't have to move just anywhere besides a straight line. Yeah, I agree. And and that's a good point about uh, with the ball at his feet. It does allow him to press up a little bit higher on the pitch when they do want to kind of get into an attacking formation. But defensively, just in the box, he's a beast and uh, thought he deserved credit for playing a pretty phenomenal game. Uh, 24th minute, Aaron Wan-Bissaka came across and had a nice defensive contribution to cover a Gabriel Jesus run and kind of just put him off as Jesus went for a volley. And at this time, I texted you guys in our separate group chat and said that, well, Jesus has his faults for sure. He's not a great finisher, not an elite finisher, um, not the most tidy of strikers in the world, and also has the reputation or now has the the apprenticeship of the most prolific striker in Premier League history. Um, he does get his criticisms rightly, but one thing he does incredibly well is he does not stop moving and he makes dynamic runs the whole time. And yeah. if you can find him, it's a very good weapon. And I thought he was probably City's most dangerous player on the day offensively. Uh, Sterling was sloppy. Mares really sputtered his only chance in that game. And, and De Bruyne, who's showing a little bit more cleanliness um, the last couple of games linked up with Jesus well on a number of occasions. Is this is this a worrying sign now for Manchester City fans? Because De Bruyne still you give him the ball in that in the China in the channel to whip the balls in, he'll give you a great ball, but he has not really been himself this season. Yeah, um, he had the he had a uh, a goal and an assist against Burnley. And I believe a PK goal against Fulham. So he's slowly starting to round out back into form. I have to admit that I mentioned in our synopsis of the Liverpool game that his lack of intent and his um, his making the wrong decision at the wrong time where yeah. sometimes I felt like he was shooting when he should have slipped somebody in and he slipped somebody in when I felt like he should have shot. And and that was match sharpness that he was lacking. I'm seeing that somewhat decline the last couple of games. So I'm not too worried, I guess, is a really long-winded yeah. answer to your question. I think De Bruyne is coming off of, you know, a 20 assist season still, you know, one of the premier midfielders in the world, if not For the sure. best. Um, okay. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so I thought Manchester United, quite frankly, got the better of the chances in the first half. Uh, there was a Mares shot that was saved well by De Gea off his line. That was Manchester City's best chance of the half. But on the whole, I thought United had a better first half. The second half, on the other hand, incredibly sleepy. Manchester United was able to get the ball in spots that were better than the spots that they were possessing in the first half. But Manchester United's ability to clear the ball out of the box and um, and just overall their defensive shape was really strong. Um, you know, Rashford did almost draw a penalty in the 46th minute just out of halftime, 
but VAR deemed him offside on the in the buildup, so that penalty decision really never had to be reviewed. He scuffed a shot about ten minutes later. Um, a good good chance in transition, I believe, off of a, of a Pogba pass that was really superb. Uh, but beyond that, just super sleepy in the second half. Honestly, kind of reminded me of the Manchester City Liverpool game, the way that the energy kind of tailed off in the second half. And um, I'll say it again. Yeah. It's a shame that uh, Manchester is not in phase two or whatever their classification is. And we didn't have fans at this game because it would have been nice to have some United fans cursing out Ollie and ushering them on and, and some more energy in the stadium for, you know, a, a yeah. historic Derby. Second half was so sleepy. I actually started watching Penn state. That's how bad it was. Hey, at least um, they had a nice second half. <laughs> yeah. Well, now moving on to another, I would say on the whole kind of sleepy game on Saturday. I don't know if the fixtures are piling up and we're not getting the, the normal great quality of, of football, soccer that we've been getting to start the season, but Everton versus Chelsea and Chelsea have now had a history in recent seasons of just going away to Everton and always losing. Yep. Uh, I, I did not expect much from Chelsea this game, uh, but I, I was kind of thinking they could get a draw. They didn't. Spoiler alert. Um, early PK-ish for Everton. It was Gilfie Sigurdsson who stepped up, did not let Richarlison or their top scorer, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, get it. But he rolled the ball very nicely to the right of uh, Eduard Mendy. And that was the PK from Mendy's first real mistake so far in the Chelsea net. He's been a great signing for them, obviously. like Nearly anybody would improve on Kepa, but he has actually played phenomenally well so far in his yeah. Chelsea career. Yeah, but, but that was a... To be fair... Um... If you asked the Chelsea fan before the game if he was capable of letting in a goal, I'm not so like 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 physically capable of letting in a goal. Mm-hmm. Like, does that possibility even exist? Most Chelsea fans would say no because they were so high on him. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of kind of happy that they were brought back down to earth a little bit. I mean, no one can be can be that good. He's definitely done well. Has he been protected very nicely by Thiago Silva? By, and a poor run of competition too. Yeah, yeah. Chelsea. I mean, everyone's been telling me how good Chelsea is. They haven't really played that many good teams, even in their Champions League group. They haven't necessarily come again across the stiffest competition. So they go to a place where they haven't done well in recent times. Edouard Mendy makes a mistake, takes out Dominic Calvert Lewin. Sigurdsson steps up, rolls the ball in. And that was basically all Everton needed. Chelsea did have 72% of the ball mm-hmm. this game, which is pretty insane. But they had 10 shots. Everton had nine. They still had one less shot on target than Everton. And Chelsea had one big chance, I think, this whole game. Um, they they just didn't look them, themselves and their normal attacking selves, which be... The- they looked like they were lacking a certain bearded winger who can beat players in one-on-one circumstance situations. <laughs> Is that the American? Uh, the American, Captain American. 
Captain, yeah. Captain American. What the fuck is that? Captain America. Yes, yeah. that's who I'm talking about. Yeah, Mason Mount had a decent game. He looked lively here and there. Reese James had a free kick that went to Pickford's side of the wall. So that never really was going to trouble Pickford. He also he had a, a uh, crazy volley or like outside the, the box shot that hit the inside of the post. Um, he's got an actual rip on him. Yeah, he does. Coming coming for the most, the title of the best attacking right fullback in the Premier League, English attacking fullback in the Premier League. Um, but he's got some a ways to go, I think. They ever Chelsea didn't look that bad as a whole, I don't think. Everton just kind of weren't troubled. Pickford did his best to try and concede some goals along the way. <laughs> um, but Everton as a whole, sturdy. They got their goal, kind of shut up shop. They were very c- uh, comfortable without having the ball. Um, Chelsea just couldn't get it done. And yeah, maybe they are missing that man, Christian Pulisic, just a little bit now. Yeah, I mean, I think when you play against a team, especially a team with some quality, you know, just kind of throughout the pitch, who who nicks a goal early and then wants to set up shop and play at a really low block, you know, sometimes there's almost nothing you can do when there's 11 bodies in front of the net. Uh, I'm not saying that that's what happened this game, but I'm just trying to make sense of the 72% possession and um, and the lack of shots and things like that. Sometimes when there's 11 bodies in a really constricted area, it's very, very hard to put shots on net and things like that. That being said, uh, kind of funny that Everton played that defensively at home, um, you know, in, in a year where they they were people were saying title contenders first four games. well they started so well and then actually recently it's all kind of fallen apart yeah uh, which is kind of funny but that leaves chelsea in fifth and everton in seventh yeah and just backtracking manchester united in eighth manchester city in ninth they both have a game in hand uh because i forgot to mention that coming off of last game <laughs> hey it happens we, we're out of practice we are. We're a little bit rusty. I don't know. I think this one's been going good so far. Uh, anyways, we'll be right back with Sunday's slate of games. All right. Moving into Sunday's slate of games. The first game taking place on Sunday was a matchup between Sheffield United and Southampton. Sheffield United is not playing good football, Luke. They are not. Does Chris Wilder maybe need five subs? Chris Wilder needs five subs and all five of those subs need to be from other teams in the Premier League because they just straight up are not getting it done. And I don't think a game could exemplify their form in the Premier League maybe more than this game. But before we get right into the game, I want to talk about our boy Danny Ings, a podcast favorite, returned to the starting lineup and he looked very sharp. I was impressed with what the... Yep the English striker was able to do on the field. Uh, With that being said, Theo Walcott coming off a pretty good run of games for the club remained in the starting lineup. Um, And before we get into the real meat and potatoes of the game, within the first five minutes, there was an unbelievable John Egan sequence that was straight (laughs) out of the Scott Sterling YouTube video. (laughs) 
because yeah. he had like four clearances in a row and all four of them were just straight off of his face. Yeah, he leaves everything on the pitch. He really does. He and really like you does. said, if, if you throw it back, that's great defending nowadays, but if you throw it back 30 years or so, I I mean, he is like a Cannavaro. He'd like be a leading Ireland to like World Cups. In, yeah. In, you know, in the he's 80s. not going to do much if you pass him the ball. But if you give someone else the ball and he's the last man back, he's got he's going to give you everything he's got and more. Not to, to stop mention, that ball. <laughs> he's literally got like a titanium skeleton too. the guy is never injured. But yeah. uh, I, I feel weird putting all of this praise into a Sheffield player, especially given that earlier in the season, I was pretty high on Sheffield saying, they're too well coached and they've got a decent enough roster and they're just pretty fucking horrible. Honestly. Uh, I mean, dreadful football all around, I think really, really poor. So another kind of constant like Sheffield being terrible is James Ward Prowse putting in dangerous service on free kicks or taking dangerous dead ball kicks. And Wow, the opening goal did come off a James Ward-Prowse free kick. It wasn't put into a particularly dangerous area, although Southampton, uh, sorry, uh, although uh, the Sheffield defender who did get on the end of the of the free kick to clear it kind of did so uh, with a little bit of poor communication with Ramsdale. He was charging out to try and claim the ball into the box as it was kicked a little bit deep into the box. Nonetheless, that Sheffield defender tried to clear the ball miss hit the clearance it bounced around the box a little bit and found Shay Adams who snuck the ball in on the near post um and I'm just thinking to myself why couldn't he have scored that goal when I was wild carding him in fantasy soccer last week but so be it he scored Southampton's opener and you know they he scored the opener but it, Southampton completely dominated the first half. I don't know if it was by design or just like a talent slash execution gap, but Southampton outpossessed Sheffield almost 80 to 20, and they also outshot them 10 to 1 in the first half. So Sheffield was super lucky to really even be in it come halftime. And then the second half came, and that continued pressure from Southampton eventually led to two more goals. Uh, first it was a Stuart Armstrong shot from outside the box that was deflected on its way to the net and snuck by Aaron Ramsdale. And then Nathan Redmond worked a really nice patient one, two cut it on his right foot and slotted it home for three, nothing did really well to hold off the defender too. I was pretty yeah. impressed about that. Yeah, that was, it was just really good timing between him and Romeo. Um, it took a little while to develop, but uh, once he got that first touch right on top of the box, you kind of just knew what was going to take place next. Obviously, Nathan Redmond being a personal favorite of Andrew Severin. And I think it's safe to say that Southampton executed better than Sheffield all over the pitch, be it those aerial uh, duels that their back line needed to win to keep McGaldrick and McBurney and, um, and Sharp from getting on the end of them or retaining the ball in midfield. And then especially like their transition offense and movement around the 18 was just pretty stellar. And last note, Southampton's been drastically outperforming their uh, expected goals 
for and against differential. So mm-hmm. you can expect that this top four form won't continue. But I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. Have you been a? Are you getting big into the uh, the XG philosophy? No, I just am on Twitter occasionally. Yeah, a lot occasionally. Yeah, I mean, my screen time might be six plus hours a day, but <laughs> that's not really what the point of this podcast is all about. My my ultimate point was fucking X, XG difference. Uh, there's really only one number that matters, and that's four. That's where they sit in the table, baby. Yeah, they've been playing so well, and they kind of kept that up without Denny Ings for a decent amount of time, which is pretty impressive. Um, I agree. I don't think they're going to stick around the top four for a long period of time, but they fully deserve where they are right now in terms of their season, who they played, and how they played against those. Um, So, yeah, now moving on to a game with... Crystal Palace facing off against top of the table before and after the game, Tottenham Hotspur. Tottenham, I did see this game as potentially tricky for them. Uh, They've been getting some good results after what on paper looked like a hard run of fixtures, but if you were looking at how Tottenham were playing, maybe those teams were actually suiting Tottenham's style a little bit. so when they go, they come across a team such as Crystal Palace, that's perfectly fine with kind of sitting back and they want Tottenham to take the game to them. Mm-hmm. I did see this as potentially uh, troublesome for them. Uh, Tottenham started pretty well. Uh, of course, that usual tandem of Harry Kane and Hyungman Son kind of providing most of the spark and attack for them. Wilfred Zaha, Christian Benteke, Schlupp, and Eze uh, on the other side for Crystal Palace. Um, there was a, an early chance for Human Son, who just couldn't quite direct it back on target. Then Regulion, the left back for Tottenham, also went super close with a right-footed shot on his weak foot that nearly crept in the top corner. That would have been an absolute banger. Um, but yeah, Palace, on the whole, were defending fairly well. Tottenham didn't have too many wide open chances and it was actually harry kane trying something a little bit ambitious from like 25 yards out he had a shot and straight down guayita's like neck basically Mm -hmm. straight down his throat Uh, a little bit of curve on the ball potentially maybe he was unsighted I, i didn't really understand why he took that first step to the right in the first place but that was all that Harry Kane needed. His shot found his way through Guaita, and that opened the scoring for Tottenham. Um, they are so comfortable, it seems like now, sitting back and defending. They obviously were looking for that second goal. They With the, with the talent they have in attack, they're always going to be dangerous whenever they get the ball going forward. But they didn't really, at that point, kind of step on the gas and and really try and take the game to Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace on the whole kind of seemed a little bit comfortable. They definitely had some chances here and there. Um, But yeah, Guaita, who was, I think, very much at fault for that original Harry Kane goal, later made up uh, for his few mistakes. He was named man of the match by the commentators. Uh, I'm not sure if that's fully deserved. I thought 
Eberetshi Eze, who we've talked about a little bit throughout the podcast so far, also played super well. He is he looks like a really good player, and we know that Zaha is super dangerous, a super good player, but Eze is also really coming into his own. And it was one of the best free kick deliveries uh, I've seen so far this season, which then led to Crystal Palace's equalizer. He has this, he had like a little kind of run up step uh, free kick routine where he almost like knuckled the ball in uh, on the cross, landed in the most dangerous area. Lloris couldn't do anything about it. Basically, it just hit him, deflected around a couple bit, a couple more times in the box and Jeffrey Schlupp, everyone's favorite full-time Olympic um, like runner because he has the touch of a, you know, three-year-old. I was going to say something worse, but uh, the touch of a three-year-old. You were going to say the exact opposite of a three-year-old. <laughs> yeah, the touch of a three-year-old on the actual, with the football, but he managed to get his foot to it, knocked it past Larice, who had played very well up to that point, and that made it 1-1 to Crystal Palace. Uh, there was a late surge from Tottenham. They went close a new, uh, number of times, most notably with the late Eric Dyer free kick, which Guaita stretched out and tipped onto the crossbar. A pretty incredible save mm -hmm. uh, And Tottenham. Luckily for them, a few other teams around them dropped points also this week, but they were definitely missing an opportunity here to extend their lead at the top of the table. That game finished 1-1 to Tottenham and Crystal Palace. Any thoughts on that one, Sev? No, I just think it's very fitting for the narrative of the weekend for a top team to drop a couple points. It's just, it's if you're going to ever pick a weekend to do it, as uh, somebody who's fighting for the title, it is this week. And I mean, I'm always happy to see Tottenham drop points. Yeah, it's the best, one of the better feelings you can have on a Premier League weekend. For you, for sure. And uh, as of now, honestly, for me too. Yeah, for you too. Yeah, oh, 100%. Uh, it's going to be that meme with the two arms coming together. And uh, it's going to be Sam Smeek watching Tottenham drop points pretty much every match week for the rest of the season. Yeah, unfortunately, it does look like that. And yeah, as you said, I mean, this weekend had those vibes about it kind of from the start. It just, there was something lacking, I think, throughout the entire weekend in terms of a lot of teams play, maybe, you know, besides Southampton um, and maybe Leicester, which we'll get to. But yeah. it just didn't seem like a normal Premier League weekend where every team is like super up for it, giving their best showing, um, which I'm sure you'll get to in the next game. Yeah, sure. Let's get into it. So it was Luke's beloved Reds against Fulham at Craven Cottage. Good to and see your beloved Scott Parker. My beloved Scott Parker. Good to see uh, some fans back in the cottage. I don't know. I didn't really get a good view of the the Thames facing uh, stands. I don't know if they're still doing work on the on the stands. So. Um, maybe still doing those renovations to get that thing really rocking. But the 2000 fans that were allowed created a pretty nice atmosphere, in my opinion. Let's just get into the thick of it. In the 16th minute, there was a call on the field uh, against Fabinho, bringing down Ivan Caballero in the box. Um, 
or sorry, there was no call. It, it, uh, it, 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 it happened. There was an instance of Fabinho bringing down Ivan Caballero in the box and uh, behind the play, as the play continued, VAR checked this incident that went down that happened in the box. Caballero was driving on the byline. Fabinho stuck in uh, his foot, uh, was able to get the ball out of bounds, whether or not he came through. Caballero's plant leg was the discussion of the VAR check and the VAR officials asked the on-field official to go to the VAR monitor to check uh, to see if it was a penalty, asked Andre Mariner to give it a second look. Andre Mariner went to the went to the screen and for only the second time all season, he disagreed with the VAR official asking for a second look and did not reward a penalty for Fulham. Uh, I mean, it's I, I want to just make sure that you're touching on this because at full speed, it did not look like a penalty. It looked like he got the ball clearly on the replay with probably five or six different angles of the replay. It's still up for discussion about, you know, he there's some contact with the player, but did he get the ball? Was it a fair challenge? And at that point, that is not what VAR is used for. This was called a corner on the pitch and then reviewed for two or three minutes with unlimited angles to review if there was more contact than originally thought. And that's just not a clear and obvious error. And I think that that was refreshing to see. It may have been refreshing, but if it's hard to feel not hard done if you're a Fulham fan because you know, you've you've seen so many of these calls go the other way where on the field. Yeah, so maybe many of those have been given against Liverpool already this season. So. Yeah, potentially, but uh, there has to be a degree of consistency with any type of officiating in any game. My dad is a big high school basketball fan. He goes to all of the high school basketball games and he loves yelling at the referees and he screams consistency. That's all he wants is consistency out of the refereeing. And while it may be refreshing to say, you know, there's this thing that a lot of people don't like that the referees, that the referee in this, in this instance actively went against, it is kind of against the the consistent nature of what VAR has been this season. Again, we've talked about it on this podcast. We don't necessarily always agree with VAR, but I just, I'll, I'll be honest. My sentiment was after watching it on on the VAR review, I didn't notice it in the game. Yeah. hundred percent. I'll be the first to admit that. But after watching it, on the VAR review, I was like, they're going to award that. That's just been the norm this season. They ultimately didn't in the game played on, which is, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there has to be contact. I'm definitely biased, but I did not think it was a penalty. I think it would have been incredibly harsh, but it didn't matter in the end because. Yeah, it didn't matter in the end. Um, but, you know, that was the early controversy uh, that did take place. Beyond that, in the wider open play of the game, what, I'll ask you because I want to get your thoughts on it. I don't want to come across as harsh. What were your th- thoughts on the first half? That's one of the worst I've seen this Liverpool side play in the past, I don't know, three years maybe. There was just nothing that resembles what you normally associate with Liverpool and this current team. There was no press. There was no, you know, there was no collaboration. There was no fluidity in the movement. There was no controlling the game. There was no taking the sting out of any attacks. There was no 
coordinated press on anybody. There was gaps all over the pitch. Klopp was going apoplectic on the sideline. It was, I don't understand what happened, but no one turned up for the first 30 minutes. And it was, it was diabolical. Yeah. Looking at it through another lens, obviously I think it's a, it's only natural to watch a game as a fan and, uh, and your familiarity with the team that you watch week in and week out leads you to analyze the game and say, like, what did we do wrong? Or what, what, what happened today that hasn't happened every other time I've watched this team. But I think it, there is some degree of credit that uh, has to go to Fulham for how they played. They were super energetic in the first half. I mean, I don't know what Scott Parker did to them pregame, but they, for the first 45 minutes, or I would actually say probably the first 35 minutes, yeah. they were pedal to the metal. Uh, yeah. Lamina, um, uh, you know, Lamina and um, uh, why am I blanking Locked on this his name? cheek. No, the, the big dude. Uh, Anguisa. Lamina and Anguisa were insane in the midfield. They were hard into all of their tackles, super physically imposing. And conversely, like Lookman was very dangerous. Caviero running in behind, very dangerous. And I actually think the real part of the Scott Parker masterclass here was dropping Bobby Reed to a wingback and letting Olaena play kind of as a left center back. And that really negated all that uh, Sadio Mane was going to do on that right side because it lended tons of speed to covering those balls in over the top. And likewise, like the Anthony Robinson left wing back on the other side, that speed going up against Mohamed Salah made it really hard for Liverpool to play in behind down those types of channels. And I just think that in a, a mix of really, really solid energy, hard tackling, tries kind of physically imposing themselves mixed with what was a pretty sloppy day. Uh, and like you, you hit on all the points, be it the press stringing together a dynamic attack, all of those things. It led to like really a, a very difficult 35 minutes for, for Liverpool. Um, I think yeah. that's fair to say. No, I think Fulham definitely played well. And when a side plays badly, it's, as you said, very easy to just criticize the side that's playing badly. But at some point, it's often down to what the other team is doing well. And Fulham definitely played us super hard, super well in the first 35. Um, you know, you expect a team to be able to outperform uh, a Fulham side when they've had the years that they've had the past few. Um, but they definitely shocked us and they were deservedly winning come halftime. Yeah, so uh, they were winning because of the action that took place in the 25th minute. It was a corner kick that Fulham won um, the ball at the top of the box. Uh, it was cleared, kind of falling slowly at the top of the box. Uh, Anthony Robinson leaned into Mohamed Salah, maybe gave him a little bit of a shove. I think when you're at the top of the box in that situation, you can either – really challenge hard for that ball or you can try and draw like a little bit of a free kick or something off of it. Or, uh, you know, it, it just gets physical when you're in the box during a set piece, maybe Anthony Robinson pulled him. That really wasn't all that significant because Anthony Robinson simply 
kicked the ball off the back of Mohamed Salah and it squirted out to a Fulham player on the right side of the box. He slipped in Bobby Reed, who just absolutely pummeled his right-footed shot past Alisson for one nothing. And yeah, it stayed that way with Fulham getting some pretty good chances continuing throughout the half. Um, be it, like I said, Lookman or Caballero were repeatedly dangerous. Loftus-Cheek was a nice metronomic figure in midfield. And I just kept saying to myself, there's no way Fulham keeps this type of pressure up and this type of ball-winning mentality in midfield. They need to get another one. They need to get another one. Well, come like 35-40, the tide started to shift. Liverpool started to pick up the intensity. Fulham not being able to play that same hectic style of football, you know, going 100% into every ball started to fade. And Liverpool had a nice little rally to close out the half. Um, and then transitioning into the second half, I thought the game kind of moved into a little bit more of a lang- languid state. I don't know. A little bit more of a reserved state. Um, Liverpool was significantly more on the front foot than they were in the first half, trying to push for that equalizer. But for the large majority of the second half, Fulham was pretty content defending in that low block, you know, they didn't ask a ton of questions of, um, or Liverpool didn't ask ask a ton of questions of Fulham. There was a, a good instance of Liverpool build up ending in a Firmino nutmeg slip through to Henderson and the shot was saved really well by Areola. That was probably their best chance of uh, the second half until there was a penalty call in the 78th minute. Liverpool won a free kick in a really good spot at the top of the box. Uh, The free kick was blasted in by Wijnaldum and right into the wall. But Andre Mariner, as quick as the shot was taken, was blowing his whistle, pointing to the penalty spot on review. um, On review, it was shown to be a handball. Uh, I forget who it was. It was one of the subs that came in the second half. Jumped up, turned, stuck out his elbow. Bobby Reed was next to him, had his hands tucked in. It clattered against both of their Kamara, arms. Kamara, I think. Yeah, it was, it, yeah. It was Kamara. Um, clattered against both of their arms. Uh, we didn't see the VAR review, but it was checked in the background. Andre Mariner had no doubt about it, pointed to the spot. Mohamed Salah converted the penalty, and really that was all she wrote. Liverpool did push a little bit for... Uh, an equal or uh, a winning goal at that point, but the closest they got was like a nice Curtis Jones, really impressive skill run in the 80th minute, uh, where his shot was eventually saved by Areola, and ultimately it was it was a one-one game. Yeah. Any thoughts um, on the penalty call? Just because that was a little bit of a talking point. Uh, well, I know we have discussed the whole handball rulings in the VAR review of these suspect handballs. That one has, since the game started, always been a handball. You're not you're taught from literally the day you start playing soccer to not jump in the wall and raise your hands. Um, Kamara jumped, turned his back to the ball, which is another cardinal sin, and raised his elbow um, on replay. The ball smacks his elbow, which is head height. I, I wouldn't. Um, I, w- I disagree with both of those statements. That is that is 
since soccer has no, been, no, that's that's not that's not. That has always been a penalty. That's not what that I has, disagree with. That is that's not. not that is not. Okay, let me hear it. That is not. That is no. not a VAR new thing. That has no. always been a penalty. Okay, all right. Uh, no, I, I, my, my issue was the two words you chose with it smacking into his arm and it being head high. It was definitely his wasn't arm head, is head high. It definitely wasn't head high. It was significantly below his shoulder. And I also think, I, mm. I mean, sure, the cardinal sin can be in place and that can be a, a stonewall penalty. But I mean, that kick was going nowhere but the wall. Um, it, it was. It went straight into the wall. It glanced Ooh. off of Kamara's elbow and then really most mostly hit Bobby Reed uh, after no, the deflection. His, well, it only hit Bobby Reed because it hit someone's arm. Uh, I think that was probably only ever going into a player in the wall. Uh, I think that if it didn't hit Kamara, it would have gl- it would have just gone right off. Bobby Dude, Reed. is it? But it is it a terrible? Is it a terrible penalty? Matter? Yeah, I'm like, no, it doesn't matter because it is a penalty, and yeah. you can call it bias, you can call it whatever you want, but that has always been a penalty. That is no, it's. I mean that that one has always been a penalty. Always has been a penalty. It's not a new. It was called a penalty on the pitch. It's not a VAR thing. It's always been a penalty. Is it a shitty thing to like to to concede a goal by to concede a penalty by? Yeah, of course it is. But that one has always been a penalty. I don't think they're. I don't think the call on the on the field is harsher. You know, I think Liverpool fans have still. I think it's a bit harsh, but I, all but the right only in because, the world only to because complain I'm about sh- VAR survival season. I'm sure that those instances happen a lot more in games than Andre Mariner just immediately blowing his whistle and pointing to the spot. Like there might've been a bit of hypersensitivity there um, because like to the plain eye, it did look like he just kind of blasted the ball into the wall. And then, yeah. No, I mean, there was appeals immediately from all Liverpool players. It was a yeah, penalty. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was I a mean penalty. anyway, the penalty. Um, yeah. I, I mean, just to, Redirect what Klopp said in the in the press conference. Like you can't start a game that badly as against a team like Fulham, who you know they get their goal and they're going to put eleven people behind the ball. You're just making your task that much harder. You're not getting the the rhythm going in the game early, and then you're down one nothing. You have forty five minutes to try and break down a team with eleven people behind the ball, like Everton versus Chelsea. It's often there's not much you can do. Liverpool could have been so much better. Um, but Fulham, all credit where credit's due. Um, in recent weeks, have actually looks like they've turned the ship around. Um, and I think the fairest result there was was at least a, a draw for Fulham. Uh, yeah, I I, uh, I just want to since we're talking about Klopp's comments after the game, you you can't talk about his comments without maybe talking about the quote of the weekend. Uh, he said, and I'm paraphrasing a bit. I like Fulham. They're a good-looking side like their manager. And, I mean, that shit just warmed yeah. my heart right up. A little crush on Scotty Parker, maybe. I mean, hey, Jurgen, he knows football and he knows handsome PFA Player of the Year, former PFA Player of the Year award-winning central midfielders. <laughs> the original black-booted midfielder, Scotty Parker. No doubt. Shout-out to him. Always, always love all right. Well, I I'm gonna do this game a little bit differently. I don't really want to do a play by play because this game was quite atrocious to watch. I am speaking of Arsenal Burnley. There were two main incidents that happened. Xhaka put his hand on 
who was it's throat? Was it Robbie Brady? Yeah. I think it was Robbie Brady's throat. Um, he was, they he got was, into a scuffle. Um, there was some pushing involved. Shaka reached out, grabbed Roddy, Robbie Brady by the throat. That was reviewed by VAR. Shaka was sent off. This was after, you know, at a decent amount of time, nearly like an hour gone in the game of both sides, basically just doing nothing. Um, and playing some, some pretty piss poor football. Um, and that really turned the game on its head, kind of. It allowed Burnley to take more risks against this Arsenal side. It, the game, I don't think, was really anything to say about it. The one goal came when a corner was put in and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was looking to head it out, but it skimmed off the backside of his head and passed Bert Leno into the goal. And I wanted to kind of just let you explain to the viewers what is going on with Arsenal. And like, I, I can't understand how bad you guys are is I also want an explanation. Yeah. I mean, I personally, I didn't think, I didn't think this game warranted, like if we're going to talk about Fulham deserving a one, one draw, I really think that on the run of play, <laughs> You know, Arsenal did not deserve to lose one nothing. Uh, obviously, when you get reduced to ten men, the whole dynamic of the game changes. But um, Arsenal was pretty dominant in uh, what I agree was a very sloppy and boring and you had, shitty yeah. game. But you I mean, we, for sure. I could agree with we, that. We yeah, we had. 65% of the ball we were tripling them up on shots I mean they I, in the first half they didn't have like a real scoring opportunity once and really until we went they went we went down to 10 men they really didn't have a scoring opportunity I guess my way I of, don't think you maybe had a clear opportunity Tierney um, maybe uh, there was a holding header that went clear over the bar to be fair they did have a Chris Wood header in the 10th minute on just a really bad miscommunication between Gabrielle and Bellerin on whether or not they were going to hold him on or uh, try and play him into an offside trap. But um, no, there was a Lacazette shot that was, there's two Lacazette shots from oh. inside the box that were yep. uh, kind of really well blocked by the keeper, uh, by Nick Pope. Um, there's a, a holding header that went over. Ultimately what I'm saying is I don't think it's worth putting too much analysis into why Arsenal lost this specific game. If we want to look macro and talk about their overall problems, sure. Uh, that was that I'm not specifically picking on Arsenal for this game, but it, it, when it happens to a Liverpool side who are still second in the table and they don't have a good outing, you know, that's one thing or the seven, two, that's one thing. When it happens to an Arsenal team now for a number of times already this season and they're 15th, there's something not right. And I think I saw a stat that Willian has only passed the ball to a Bamiyang all season, like 12 times. And there's numerous damning statistics about the attacking output of this Arsenal side, specifically Willian, a Bamiyang, Lacazette. And I don't know what's going on. And they they're not playing good football. They're 
not creating chances at a good rate. I is it Arteta? Is it the players? I mean, shit. I've just there's been so much discussion about this online. It's yeah. honestly maddening. Uh, my personal opinion is that we play with. I mean, at any time we play with two or three sixes on the field. If it's Danny Ceballos, Xhaka, Moel Nani, it doesn't matter who's there. They're not dynamic enough midfielders to to be one one step ahead in transition, to slip somebody in when the, passing the ball around the box, to to suck in a defender and you know, hit an awkward or unusual pass. Everything's very predictable. All we do, all we seem to do is cycle the ball around the 18 from a non-threatening distance. And uh, when we run out of rotation, fire in like a a low percentage cross. So uh, I don't know if this is the way that Arteta is instructing them to play football. Like if I knew, I would have to be at Highbury watching the training saying, yeah, okay, this is what he's telling them to do. Or whether um, it's quite literally lack of personnel. But yeah, I I really, honestly, I I thought it last year. I thought it when Unai Emery was our coach. I think without being able to dictate the midfield, like you just will never be a dominant side in the sport. Uh, And I think it all starts with just, a really, really dull midfield, uh, a midfield that's out of ideas, a midfield that does not create for the side. I really think it starts and ends there. When you play with Elneny and Xhaka as your holding midfielders, there's just zero creativity on the pitch. You can pass the ball around the 18 as many times as you want. Those guys are not going to make a winning play from the top of the 18. That's the most concerning thing for me. They try to they try to drop uh, Laka in to be creative, but then if you drop Laka in, one of those guys has to make a run into the box and try and push the ball upfield. It just, for me, it all starts in the midfield. Yeah. And so what I, we're doing, I, sorry, just real quick. Yeah, so what we're that, doing yeah. without mid, a strong midfield is we're overcompensating by playing with wingbacks and playing with a bunch of wide players. And then, yeah, it makes sense that everybody wants to hug the touchline and try and whip in these crosses because that's where they're used to playing. I mean, like maybe William can tuck in, but he's playing on the right where his dominant foot leads him to the end line. And, you know, so now we're playing with wide players trying to build up everything with width. It's just so, yeah, it's very predictable. There's not there's no dynamic runs into the box. There's no creativity at the top of the box. Terrible out of ideas. That's what it is, in my opinion. What changed since last season when you won the FA Cup? Why are you um, not playing as well? Well, I talked about it a little bit a couple podcasts ago, but it's the defensive identity more than anything. I, I like the idea that if we don't have the players to play a creative one-touch around the 18 style then sure if you want to play a more defensive style where you put a couple more bodies behind the box you're really 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 tough to play through you pick off passes in midfield and you use players like Alba and Saka and Nicola Pepe who have some pace in transition who are really talented in transition you can even throw Willick or Nelson into that conversation uh, and play like nice counter-attacking football that works people kind of didn't like that 
Arsenal regressed to that style. Uh, fans, I'm sure technical staff, I'm sure people in the club. And we're talking about, let's get rid of the back five. Let's move to a back four. Let's play a little bit more possession-based. It's just not working. It also only works against the top teams. No one's ever won the Premier League playing counterattack. Chelsea uh, with Mourinho did, and Tottenham with Mourinho is in first place now. And I wouldn't it, call their style counterattack. They have they play very defensive against the top teams and play for at least a point, and then they go out and they assert themselves against the bottom teams. I don't think anyone's won the Premier League full on being a counterattacking team. Fair enough, and that that can hundred percent be true, but. You know, a team that fine, it doesn't have to be counterattacking, but their style has to be more combative in the midfield, more difficult to play through. Um, your, you know, your transition from when you lose the ball to a to a counter press to a defensive shape needs to be a lot sharper. You need to have players that just show that they want to win the ball back more than Arsenal are doing right now. That's what got you asked me what they did well last. Last yeah. after the restart, it was that those types of things that they really, really thrived on. Even Alba chasing down a keeper who thinks he has more time on the ball, he does. And Alba's lightning fast and sticks to foot in. Like that's the type of intent that I I haven't seen any of that recently. Yeah. Well, I don't know how you how you revamp the squad. Um, I think you did say to me potentially Arteta has some troubles in the dressing room. I'm not sure how you fix the Arsenal squad. I, I, I'm not a fan of chopping and changing managers, so I don't think necessarily it's all like you know just down to the manager because there's now been multiple managers since, um, since Wenger, and it's it's still Wenger not included. working out. Wenger included. Wenger in, yep, included. So I think something internal, something within the squad's mindset needs to change. I am sorry for making you you know go on a rant there and then having to talk about the other game, but I, uh, you have way more to say about this than I do. And I can't even begin to explain it. Cause I don't like, there's a very few teams that I'd like to see doing this poorly, namely Man United and Everton. I'm here all day to watch them be in a relegation fight. The other top teams, actually maybe Chelsea too. And um, City. The other, and City. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, nearly everybody Arsenal. I actually have kind of a, a sweet spot for just because they played good football. They seem to do things the right way on the whole. Um, and yeah, I just didn't really know what was going on. Here's one thing I will say. If there really is a spat with Arteta and senior players at the team, like the, the players that were kind of called out were Ozil, Socrates, David Luiz. Um, sure. Let's just say those guys. I, this is why you don't fire Mikel Arteta because if there is a spat between those guys and him and they're trying to do some type of coup, Ozil's out of contract this summer. Socrates is out of contract this summer. David Luiz is out of contract this summer. Mustafi's out of contract this summer. Laka's out of contract next summer. Um, uh, Elneny, Chambers, I don't know. There's a bunch of players who are out of contract next summer as well. You have five players who are out of contract this summer who are senior players. They're gone irregardless, as as my dad likes to say. The other four or five senior players that are out of contracts next summer, either they're on board and they're committed, or, I mean, with a year left on their contract, you maximize your return on them. That's pretty massive roster overhaul just based on simply 
contracts running out and free agents becoming available, that's why you don't fire Arteta. You let those players go, and that's at least you know five to ten players that seemingly you know could be well over a million pounds a week off the wage bill i would say a little bit more maybe maybe like a million and a half yeah that's all you need sometimes well yeah i don't really like i'm I'm not even trying to you know very like roast you or take the piss out of arsenal at this point it's kind of depressing i told you uh Trust me, this shit, like, yeah, it bothers me. Nobody wants to see their team doing poorly, but I don't take it home with me. It's, I enjoy watching the sport and I enjoy following the storylines, but I don't internalize it. That's where me and you differ. I know, trust me, I know. (laughs) All right, so enough about Arsenal. If you're an Arsenal fan out there, I hope you enjoyed my little rant. If not, I hope you skipped ahead and said, that man's crazy and I don't need to hear that shit. So we'll talk about uh, the game that was happening simultaneously. Unfortunately, it meant I had to go back and do a rewatch because I was watching the Arsenal game. But it was a showdown of teams who I actually do enjoy watch play, watching play because they both have really fun styles to watch. So I did not mind doing this little rewatch. And first thing, love to do a little lineup note. It was great to see Ndidi back on the pitch. He's one of the best number sixes in the game. Number yep. six is a pitch is a position that is near and dear to me. I'm a bulldog six myself. So I love seeing <laughs> a good defensive midfielder out there winning balls in midfield and ushering the ball along to, uh, to their playmakers. And he was a key player for them last year, had a great season. So great to see him back. Lester, Started the game really well, aggressive, not letting Brighton push into their half really at all. Uh, And that was probably for the first five or seven minutes. And then Brighton did break on a few occasions early, only to be thwarted by a Casper Schmeichel goal-tending clinic. Could I say that? You can say a clinic. And maybe the most informed goalie in the Premier League, along with Edouard Mendy at the moment, because this is probably my fourth time covering Lester on the spot and four times shouting him out. He, he's playing some really nice stuff. I do like him as a player for sure. What do you think about, uh, I thought Fofana played very well too. I think Fofana just like, um, obviously being a big physical defender, but also his, his tranquility and calmness, organizing the back line on the ball player who I think he's 19 or 20 right now is playing. Yeah. Well, well, well great, ahead of his years. Yeah, especially for a defender. Uh, And so after those breaks that were, like I said, thwarted by our man Casper Schmeichel, uh, Lester really just flipped the game and took the game to Brighton. And by the end of the half, this game was completely out of reach. Vardy was stretching the back line. The wingbacks were firing crosses. And uh, James Madison was running through the 18 kind of at will, even with the ball at his feet. And all of this pressure finally resulted in a James Madison goal, really good form using the side of his foot on a low deflected cross in from James Justin. Just, I mean, basically picture perfect technique, finishing and sliding that one home. And like I said, that pressure did not let up in the 40th minute. It was again, James Justin 
crossing this time into Jamie Vardy doing one of his classic runs in behind the back line. He fired it home in stride for 2-0. And finally, Leicester ended the half. Uh, this 25-minute onslaught, as I would like to say, with probably the goal of the weekend. James Madison got the ball in transition, kind of slowed, slowed the ball down a little bit, did a couple of body feints, faked like he was going to go to the byline, dragged the ball back, got the ball out on his left foot, and wrapped a beautiful curler around the keeper for three nothing and I mean I, I'll give Brighton some credit uh Graham Potter knows how to motivate the boys they came out they were probably the better team in the second half but I mean three goal comebacks are one in a thousand and uh this was not the one uh the the James the James onslaught Jamie Vardy assisting James Madison James Justin assisting Jamie Vardy <laughs> Jamie Vardy assisting James Madison. Yeah. That's unheard of. <laughs> I mean, hey, it seems like Leicester's just a great team to do those little those little name puns with because we did the the double first names with them before and now we're doing the James show. So yeah, no, they were all sensational, honestly. Well, that wraps up week twelve in the Premier League. We hope you stuck with us uh throughout our coverage of all of the games this weekend. Uh we the games are coming up thick and fast. We have some Premier League action for everybody tomorrow and Wednesday. And what are we doing with that? Top six, you think? Uh, Current top six, big six? Yeah, sure. Current top six and then or maybe, yeah, six or four. And then maybe if there's a good game in there, we we uh, will throw it in there. Or maybe we just do some type of fucking 30-minute open discussion you know, slam poetry recital or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll free ball it. It's not, it's I, gonna I, kinda, I like the idea of just an open conversation and we just get to bullshit and whatever comes into my mind, I get to say, and we get to just go through everything that happens just in one massive rant. It's a lot easier than fucking uh, writing down notes on all 10 of the games and trying to describe each one of them in depth. So if that sounds like it's interesting and you want to hear us just really shoot the shit, that's probably what we're going to drop on Thursday or Friday. And, uh, and if that works well, maybe we revisit our current formula and say, Hey, let's try and do something a little bit more open. We're always down to experiment. If you're somebody out there who has direct connection to Luke and I, and you think you can, Give us some advice to improve the podcast for all ears. But uh, Luke, you want to wrap it up? Sure. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the week 12 podcast, the soccer football podcast with also another special shout out to Mike Dean, our referee of the week with an unforgettable performance, uh, one for the ages this week. I hope you guys stuck with us throughout the game recaps. I know we may have rambled here and there, a little bit out of practice. We apologize for that, but a lot of good information, a lot of good conversation. Uh, and yeah, let us know in the comments of either the Instagram or Twitter page what you want us to do for these midweek games and if you want us to adapt the current format to anything new. So, Peace out, guys. Love you guys. Bye.